0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: Hello, I'm Freddie Sayers, and this is Unheard. Back in March, everyone's world suddenly changed. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. So on day one of lockdown, we launched Lockdown TV, a place where we could gather experts, scientists, writers, politicians, thinkers, to try to help us understand what was going on in this strange moment, and what kind of world we were going to get at the end of it. And now, due to popular demand, here we are in podcast form. Welcome to Lockdown TV. So we have talked about lockdowns in various capacities for months now. But usually on the science, do they work? Are they the best policy? Should they be introduced sooner later? On all of that? Well, today, we're going to talk about something slightly different, which is the legal implications of lockdowns. And here to work this out with us, I'm delighted to say is Adam Wagner. Hi, Adam. Hi. So you are, a, you're a barrister at uh, Doughty Street Chambers, expert in human rights. You're also the special advisor to the Joint Committee on Human Rights is COVID-19 Inquiry. Um, And you also host a podcast called Better Human, which is all about human rights. So I think we can say you are well credentialed in the realm of human rights and law.
0: That's right. That's right.
1: Um, Let me kick straight off with something that you said earlier today that I thought was fascinating. You put it out on Twitter, which is that you asked the question, if COVID-19 had risen in a liberal democracy, in Europe, for example, do people think we would be where we are now, where lockdowns are considered the kind of normal, orthodox policy response? What sort of answer did you get to that question?
0: Um, well, I mean, you, you can imagine it, it brought out um, some strong opinions. Um, and and, and I, I did it deliberately, because I've been really trying to be careful throughout this pandemic to stay in my box um, in terms of commentary on the legal measures i mean there's been the most extraordinary amount and extent of legal measures which we can talk about what what they are and how they work um I, but obviously i'm a lawyer i'm not an epidemiologist i'm not a scientist so it's it's not you know i i can comment from a human rights perspective you know are these measures proportionate but it's very difficult to say whether they're right or wrong and i and i try not to say that but but i do think as we hopefully in the next few months come out of this phase of the of the crisis of the pandemic and there is a vaccine you know put into millions of people in the population hopefully already there are millions of people with the vaccine the balancing factors are going to change and this question about whether lockdowns are worth it um, from a rights perspective we'll have to come back it was it was pertinent at the beginning of the lockdown it's been, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic um it's kind of i think we've got into a, a certain amount of received wisdom that lockdowns are the way to deal with this virus and it's worth starting to think through again you know what is the appropriate liberal democratic rights focused response to that issue and and i and i think it was worth asking the question was it necessarily going to be this way. Um, and that is part of the analysis.
1: In terms of legal principle, does that broach new ground, then Treat, essentially treating everyone, as if they are a risk, or at risk, whether they want to be treated like that, or not? Um, it's, is it a sort of, is it a new approach, from a legal point of view?
0: I, I don't really think there is a, a legal precedent. Um, I, I read somewhere um, that Matt Hancock, I mean, this is, he's not confirmed this, but it was a sort of um, informed view that Matt Hancock had described the, what he wanted from the lockdown to be Napoleonic um, within the cabinet, as in Napoleonic in the sense of reversing the usual presumption that everything is legal unless it's explicitly disallowed to the presumption that everything is illegal unless it's explicitly allowed. And, and that's enormously different um, to the way, we in, the way ordinary people engage with, um, are bound by the laws. The fact that when you leave the house, you have to look at a list of reasons you are allowed to leave the house and be out side the house for is, is, I think, fundamentally different to anything in the modern era. And that's quite frightening, potentially. I mean, it's yeah, gone on I, I, for
1: a year now.
0: It 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 should be frightening. Um, if there's anything we've learned from, um, history, it's that the is that emergency powers tend to not you know persist beyond emergencies, and the and once a public authority, um, gets a power, they it's quite difficult to take it away from them because they become used to it. So, I mean, I'm not I I'm not so I'm not and never have been of the view that there is some sort of fascistic takeover of the UK and this is all, you know, totalitarianism and by another name. I, I really don't think it is. I think I, I would look at it through a human rights lens, which is that the right to life and the duty to protect life are absolutely fundamental. When you've got a virus of this scale, of this infectiousness and of this deadliness, um, tens of of people dying, there is a justification for pretty extreme measures. But that's not to say that, A, we shouldn't be sceptical of those measures in order to make sure that they aren't too extreme and they don't last longer than they need to. And and also that we, you know, that, that by saying, yes, there is justification for some sort of extreme measures, that we shouldn't then analyse precisely what those measures are.
1: And do you think from a human rights point of view, I mean, you mentioned the right to life, which is, of course, the most important of the human rights, but the right to association, freedom of association is another famous human right that's listed in the Convention on Human Rights. We don't have the right to associate at the moment.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, at all times during this pandemic, the government and all public authorities have had to balance the protecting the right to life. Um, against not just the right to associate, the right to free speech um, through protest, the right to family life, you know, the fact that we've at times quite literally not been able to see our families, Um, even, you know, two people in a relationship have not been able to see each other um, at certain points during this pandemic and certainly not be indoors with each other if they don't live together. Um, These have been extremely difficult balances um, and not ones which, should be lightly you know uh, jettisoned we we often say uh, in 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 the in human rights law you talk about whether there's a logical connection between the measure and the um the, the measure that you're trying to to in, impose and the end that you're seeking so for example is it logical to if if the prime minister comes out tomorrow and says right i'm going to stop people Meeting up with one other person for exercise, which is currently one of the exceptions to the rules, yeah, can that be justified from an epidemiological perspective? Is it is it strategically appropriate um, given that outdoor transmission is really not the not the focus of the epidemiological evidence? So it's it's those kind of questions that I think are really important.
1: If you tune into the kind of media conversation. So much of it is about trying to criticise the government for not doing enough. Uh, That's always the they are the questions that the Prime Minister gets at number 10. A lot of the columns in newspapers are asking that why was there not lockdowns earlier? Why was there too much liberty given at Christmas, all of those questions. Um, And it almost feels like there's no political penalty for errors in the other direction. No one is really worrying about whether they are too draconian or whether this particular restriction is necessary or not. From your point of view, from a human rights law point of view, are you more worried that we have not done enough restrictions? Or that if anything, we've gone too far?
0: I think I'd come at it from a slightly different perspective, which is I think there has been a pretty um, hearty debate over restrictions. And pretty much, I guess, since the summer, Late summer, when 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 things started getting bad again, Um, I think that in the early days there was there was so much uncertainty and so much fear because really the lack the level of knowledge about this new virus was low. I think the vast majority of people supported, you know, pretty pretty very very strict restrictions, and also the rest of the world it seemed were doing the same thing. So I think there was a real strength in numbers aspect to it. As we got into the second wave, um, if we're now in the third wave, if the, I, I guess I'm calling the second wave the autumn, early winter that led to the November, December lockdown. I think that's when the, the more sceptical voices started to arise. And my impression actually from the government policy is those voices have been quite seriously listened to. And, and I think the evidence for that is if you compare the March lockdown to the current lockdown, it's it's really is a lot um, less strict in certain ways. You know, you didn't, the March lockdown, I mean, when I say that that it was so simple, it was 12 pages long, the law. The law now is 120 pages long for the the lockdown, for the all tiers regulations. And the reason it's become so long is because you've added all sorts of exceptions that weren't there. So whereas you could only um, leave your house for a certain limited number of reasons, in March now there are support bubbles, there are childcare support bubbles in the abstract and if you tuned into this conversation a year ago you didn't know what was going on what we're talking about would sound horrific and you know monstrous you could only for me, a human rights advocate saying, well you know you should be so lucky you can have one person at your deathbed and i and I'm not and I'm not saying that that's not my um that's not where I'm coming from i'm what I'm trying to say is that the is that the restrictions are less than they were but the virus is you know absolutely you know ripping through the country so it's i th- i think it's like there's a there's a i i find sometimes with the lockdown skeptic arguments that there's an air of unreality about them that there is an air of kind of well i, I think t- quite often and, and obviously it's, it's difficult to um disentangle when you talk about the lockdown skeptics, you know there's lots of different rate. There's a range. There's what I consider to be on the un, really unreasonable um, kind of COVID denial end of things, which I think is you know is just nonsense, basically, and sort of dangerous nonsense. Um, saying really this this virus is nowhere near as serious as it's meant to, as it's been said to be. There's a conspiracy. You know, this is all about I, I don't know Bill Gates, um, injecting microchips into us, that sort of thing i i think in the sort of you know i i do think also there's between there and um the what i kind of said to be a sort of soft lockdown skeptic there's a middle position which is still for me slightly unreal it kind of it's 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 there's a lot of criticism of the um and, and a lot of well if only you left it up to people's discretion um everything would be fine um and i, I understand that argument i can but I think, to a very large extent, we are leaving it up to people's discretion anyway. I think the difference, in some ways, is quite um, is quite s- slim between leaving it up to everybody with strong guidance, which I, I guess is where that where they're, those people come from, and having legal rules in place which are technically enforceable but in reality are not being enforced.
1: The law and the politicians and the media all operate within a kind of current moment and an ecosystem which has fashions and and moods and temperatures and it and it just seems to me like what is considered virtuous changes according to that mood so you know two years ago you're a human rights advocate um, all of the kind of great and the good would really tie themselves to the mask to defend human rights and individual liberties and so that was really a, a kind of important virtue that people would want to be seen to defend. And now it feels like something has happened, where virtuous now looks like acting fast, is how people describe it. Um, you know, doing the more rather than less, quicker rather than slower, um, not waiting for evidence so much as showing leadership and getting ahead of the problem before, while there's still uncertainty. And I just wonder, are you worried that there's a there's a kind of rush to a more well, we started off talking about China, a more directly centralised, controlled, all powerful government as a kind of as what is widely considered sensible and virtuous.
0: Going back to the the laws and the way they've been um, developed, the position we've got into now is so fundamentally different to the position we were in a year ago that it's, you know, if you had described it to a, a public lawyer, so or so a human rights lawyer at the time, they would have been absolutely, you know, gobsmacked. The idea that these complex criminal laws, which affect everybody's everyday lives in, in a very fundamental way, can be imposed by the, a minister signing the law without any parliament pre-parliamentary approval, without any um, parliamentary votes until twenty-eight days later. And that that situation would continue, you know. On a, on a I I, I've calculated the lockdown laws have changed roughly once every four and a half days since, on average, since March. So, th- and and each and every time in those sixty-five changes, not a single one of them has gone to a, um, a proper parliamentary process. So, I think on two occasions out of those sixty-five, there's been a pre-parliamentary vote, but that's been, um probably usually i think both times of the day before and they got the law in the morning and in, in draft and parliament weren't able to amend so it was only a yes or a no and i think that we've changed that, the law
1: 65 times in the last year and none of them have been subject to a parliamentary vote
0: no I, I think we've changed the law over 300 times in the last year over relating to COVID, to covid right but but 65 just for the lockdown so the criminal laws um these criminal laws that um self-isolation, Face coverings, lockdown, those kind of those areas that we we collectively think of as the lockdown, um, those have all been done without using an emergency procedure under the Public Health Act 1984, which allows for this kind of emergency procedure. Where there's it, it, it's it, it's only in extreme circumstances where it's not reasonably possible to put it before Parliament, but I think that I, I do think that process has been abused. Because a very long time ago, probably after the first rule after the first law was brought in in at Mar- the end of March, within a couple of weeks, that emergency procedure should have been bent and a proper parliamentary process to be put in place and and I'm not saying a full sort of first reading second reading you know over the course of months kind of process because I think that's unrealistic, but it there could have been a creative solution to the combination of urgency and the need for scrutiny you know whether it's 14-day process which goes through a special committee can elect can offer amendments can have a few debates between the commons and the and the lords i i think there's been just a a sort of abrogation of, of parliamentary responsibility over this
1: is there also the the length of time is that a factor when you think from a human rights point of view that you know, it's fine if there's suddenly a crisis, and we don't really understand it, we get enter something akin to martial law, where we basically just everybody gets bossed around. But it's now literally more than a year since this virus first emerged. And we don't know how long this might carry on for There's talk of new variants that might escape vaccines that, you know, we all hope that the whole thing will come to an end as promised in Easter, but experience teaches us otherwise. At what point is it just not appropriate to have those kind of suspensions of liberty as a long-term way of life?
0: There are there are sort of four key things that you need to make good laws. They need to be scrutinized, they need to be lawful, they need to be impermanent, and they need to be proportionate. And and that, you know that scrutiny piece, you know, I, I was worried then. I mean, that I I would have been absolutely shocked to think that there was any um possibility of this carrying on the fact that they've got to be time limited well I- in fact they have been time limited because no none of these laws has lasted very long they've been updated amended or changed fundamentally
1: they've normally been expanded, expanded. rather
0: no, than th- th- not not necessarily because the, the the first lockdown was lasted i think until may and then was significantly decreased in size and then we had the rule of six that sort of thing and then it was only in November they went back to some form of, of, a, of a lockdown. And then since then, it's been, uh, if you live in a tier four area, it's been constant. But I think the, the what I meant by time limited wasn't that you would have lots of laws and that they would change every few days or every, few, you know, every couple of weeks. It was that you wouldn't use the emergency procedures for, for very long. You would actually bring things into a sort of some sort of normal Or semi-normal scrutinizing process but i think what's happened instead is you've got a very small group of people um it within westminster you know within the government not even parliament just the government who decide these rules um they're decided you know in consultation with sage in consultation with with it's that time of the year your vacation
1: is coming up
0: You can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com. Other groups, and that's good, but it's still a, a very, um, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a very imperfect way of dealing with criminal laws that affect everybody. It's, um, it's not enough.
1: The question I have is really about timing, that from a legal point of view, at what point do emergency measures cease to be emergency measures? You know, we, We've hit the 12 month time now, would it be 16 months, 24 months? At what point can people legitimately say, well, this now feels like a way of life, this now feels like a regime that we are living under. And for those people who don't want to live like that, what can they then do about it?
0: I mean, I think that's a massive question. Um, I think if you look back in history, you'll see that emergency measures um, evolve. They don't, they tend not to disappear. And the best example in, in our political memories is the war on terror, um, where, you know, the, the, the terrorism laws that came out of the war, that, that came after September the 11th, I think were passed within, you know, a very, very short period of time yeah um and they and they were really seriously different to what we'd had in our law before and 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 in the most part, as I understand it, they're still there um and the the so called war on terror is you know we, there's always a threat of terrorism, but I think what we what we recognized as the threat at the time from al qaeda is no longer the same threat um th- the difference with the war on terror is that the is that the the kind of restrictions on liberties were generally um, around people suspected of terrorism. You know, the, the security services may have taken on powers that actually allow them to, su- you know, su- surveil any of us. Um, the, the everyday effect of that was quite, was, was not felt by the vast majority of people, although of human rights, human rights advocates, you know, were, were hot on that because they understood the implications of allowing that to, allowing the Overton window to change, basically in terms of state surveillance, in terms of detention without trial, those sorts of things. Like we're always human rights advocates are always looking in a way to the next, the next denial of liberty, because once you, once you normalize a certain kind of restriction um, on liberty, you it can the next step is the next step. It's not it won't remain the same, and that and that's you know we know that from history. I think with Covid I think the danger is that if covid never never leaves us um or it mutates or a different virus arrives with similar you know a similar kind of virus, and we've got the same dynamic that we'll be in a kind of semi permanent state of you know this is what this is what we do now when this happens we have lockdowns, we have emergency laws, we kind of um, we take away parliamentary niceties like scrutiny, debates, votes, that sort of thing. And I think I say parliamentary I mean democratic, and I think that that is that is a danger that I don't think um is just one that comes off out of the fringes of the lockdown skeptic or the the covid skeptic movement. I think that is that's the real deal as a worry and one that we should be worried about because. Um, You can simultaneously think that um, a contagious virus, contagious deadly virus such as COVID is a serious enough threat to limit liberties for a period of time. And you can think that sometimes those limitations have to come by way of emergency measures and also think that the way in which the emergency measures have been used through this pandemic has been um, has been has gone too far um is is wrong in in its application and could be done a lot better next time um or even you know this time um in the spring when the vaccinations are increasing we we, we can we, this isn't inevitable the way we're doing things now isn't inevitable and we can be creative and think of ways that are different
1: but i mean the scenario you have just outlined where this became a kind of new normal and we went spent the next few years or even longer in a period of in out lockdowns based on new viruses or threats is absolutely terrifying. I mean, that's what that fear is what animates the kind of global movement against uh, lockdowns. And, you know, at at what point will that fear be be taken seriously? And, And how can sensible people start mitigating against that potential outcome without being dismissed as cranks?
0: Again, going into an area which isn't my own, um, I think a lot of this is psychology. Um, and one of the things I, I wrote, I wrote another article towards the beginning of the pandemic um, about why human rights are under threat during times of fear. Um, and I think that's the, that's the universal, that's the, that's the common link between all um times of crisis where rights are diminished um where it's it's very much harder to argue against um restrictions of rights when people are fearful and there and you know whether there's a genuine fear or a um or an ex- exaggerated fear or a you know a fear that maybe maybe is not strong enough and you could even say that about the beginning of the pandemic if i had said if if i had said at the beginning of the pandemic look there's a good chance in a year, will be a hundred thousand dead from this pandemic. Or it wouldn't have been me, but you know, the prime minister. Um, I think people would have said, "Come on, <laughs> that's you know." Well, he was told. It's, he it's, was told
1: by some experts. He was told a potential figure of five hundred and ten thousand deaths at the beginning of. The yeah, pandemic.
0: I think, I, I, and I think that was with no measures, and I think it was two hundred thousand with limited measures. And, and and from memory, how do you mitigate our our instincts, which are usually Let's dispense with the niceties. Let's, you know, let's crack down on something. You know, we've got to crack down on something. And that, that was the I, I think of that as the Jack Bauer kind of instinct of, you know, why was Jack Bauer twenty-four the um the poster boy, the post nine nine eleven poster boy? It's because he was the one who who um who dispensed with the niceties. You know, forget forget all this rule of law. Due process. Yeah. Yeah, due process. Let's just get the guy in the room, and you know the guy with the ticking bomb, and let's beat, let's torture him until he tells us where the bomb is. Um, and and I think that that's where that's the that was why human rights were developed in the post-war period, um, as a concept, because the and and I don't just mean the principles of of giving people equal rights to life, to liberty, to free speech, and all that. It's legally enforceable concepts that are built into, baked into. The institutions of society, of a democratic liberal society, to make it more difficult, in times of fear, and times of, um, you know, social breakdown, to, um, it, ma- it makes it stickier, the, 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 restri- the, the, the rights protections we have, it doesn't make it impossible, but it makes it stickier.
1: Where have those protections been? Now? I mean, we talk about that, and it's been this institution since the Second World War, didn't take much taken 12 months. And now as you say, we're in a new normal where we await the next restriction on our fundamental liberties in four and a half days time done from a minister with no parliamentary oversight. That's now the way we're governed. And I'm just sincerely asking you, where have all of the human rights advocates, the the clericy, the, the, the bureaucrats, the legal advocates, the people who have been talking about the importance of due process, and liberty for decades where have they all gone because it seems like they've just they've, they've disappeared
0: yeah well i mean I, I i don't really accept that premise i know that that's the jonathan sumption premise as well as where have the human rights advocates been i mean i've been involved in a million discussions i mean i i'm exaggerating but since february these these discussions have been had very publicly amongst many many human rights advocates you know in in, on every, in every media. And we've, and, you know, for example, the Joint Committee on Human Rights that I've been, you know, advising for the past nine months has made, has made these very points in three successive reports. You know, where is the parliamentary scrutiny? What, how, is this, this, um, how are these emergency procedures still being used? What can be done about it? Perhaps one point, one answer is we're not, our, our sort of unwritten constitution is a bit too flexible moments like this um and unless you have a extreme set of circumstances where just the right you know composition of the supreme court comes along at just the right time where the government pushes things too far which i think was the prorogation case the courts are not that interested actually in getting involved in these kind of big social policy issues with lots of balancing factors the and and i and i think that's really why the courts have stayed out i think parliament um i i would flip this back to to parliament ultimately parliament and the and and the party of government government bears responsibility for the way in which the um the law has been used because the the laws have been made 65 of these laws or over 300 if you count all of the coronavirus laws the laws have been made in parliament and they've been rubber stamped every single time by parliament. Um, so, you know, it, it was always open to MPs to say, and th- there was a sort of a hint of this going on with the Steve Baker kind of rebellion in the autumn, at which point the government said, well, where possible, we'll put things to a prior vote, which turned out to be 24 hours before of two votes. Yeah, And they forgot about it. by the, By tier four, they'd forgotten about it completely. I mean, they just didn't bother. And I think there was... There was a post for this current lockdown. There was a vote the day after it came into force. I, I think you know it, it's. I, I think it has to be. It's not going to be the lawyers and it's not going to be the courts who come riding to the rescue here. It has to be our democratic, democratically elected parliament that st- puts his foot down and says, "We we are we are ready to approve the right measures, but we are no longer um, willing to be sidelined." Do you think?
1: I the point I was making earlier about how moods change, ultimately it's politics, isn't it? it it's, it's fashions and politics and ways of thinking. And I think what, what's been quite frightening and unique about this last 12 months is also that there's been a sort of globalised fashion. So this unprecedented way of running a country that started in China, and then was imported to Italy, and then crossed Europe, and then America, somewhat reluctantly, uh, came on board with it, and then it now spread all the way around the world it's sort of become a new orthodoxy. And there are all these charts in the Financial Times comparing different countries' performances. And it's almost like a sort of international league table of governments, where the only purpose is to minimise COVID cases and COVID deaths. Um, And it's become this sort of central focus. Uh, Do you observe that as well? Do you you think that does it does it worry you that when those huge, um, big moments like that happen, Things like due process and the law become slightly just cast aside because if the powerful people are all thinking the same thing in all these different countries, you know, there's nowhere to hide.
0: Yeah, I mean, public mood plays an enormous role. I think um, there's a good George Orwell quote about it, about something like if you can have all the laws you want, but if the public mood doesn't want you to, you know, want something, the public mood will get it. And and, and I and I think that's in a way, the the human rights legal framework is designed to to um, attempt to solve that problem. Is you 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 know in in, in exactly the same way as the separation of powers system, then you know, any checks and balances by definition are there to make it harder to just ramrod over liberties um, and you know existing laws. W- whether th- I I think that look the are they,
1: I, I guess I, do you meant, feel that are they holding up? Do you still have confidence no, I mean, that uh, those no, checks and balances could, are going to do the job we so much need them to do?
0: I I I think that come the spring, the public mood will change again. I think we're in we're currently talking you know in the middle of January 2021 in a in the worst part of the pandemic so far. You know the the most number of daily deaths the you know the the NHS being overwhelmed this is a very it's a very difficult time to stand up and you know in the middle of the road and say, well, one minute, what about the restrictions? Um because it just is, you know, it's it's a very difficult and it's sh- in a way it should be uh difficult to do that because the um the it is very frightening that so many people are dying every single day. Over a thousand people, you know, on are being reported every day. It's very frightening. However, I do think These things move. My experience is in a month's time, I think we'll be having different conversations. And I really hope that by the summer, if the virus is more much more under control because of the vaccine, which hopefully it will be, we can have a really serious conversation about, well, we didn't what didn't what didn't we like about what happened? You know, in the cold light of day, take the emotion out of it. What was right and what was wrong? Did, you know, I don't think it's, it's the right question, did lockdowns work? Because I don't think, I think that simplifies lockdown. You know, lockdowns involve lots of measures from, you know, the leaving home measures, the gathering measures, the self-isolation measures, the face covering measures, the travel quarantine measures. You know, it, it, it's, I think you've got to look at each of the measures and say what worked, what didn't, what was worth it. And what wasn't. And and for that, you have to look carefully about what were the second order effects, the unintended consequences of these, you know, economically, so, uh, psychiatrically, um, you know, all of the things that people worry about. How many delayed operations, how many people weren't able to get cancer treatment, those sorts of things. And I think you have to do a kind of reckoning. and And that's I mean, that's the role that I think a public inquiry needs to play, because I think that's the that's the kind of public inquiries are cold environments. I've been involved, lots of them. And I mean, they are the least emotive way of dealing with very emotive questions because nothing takes the emotion out of a room like a bunch of lawyers yeah. well, talking to each other, um, you know. In a way, they, are, so you- We can make anything boring.
1: <laughs> well, that, I hope that <laughs> happens. Um, In a way, though, it requires that lull, doesn't it? It requires things to go well, and for there to be a calmer temperaments come the summer, for us to be able to put in place restrictions against restrictions in some way, new checks and balances to make sure that we don't get this kind of style of government becoming a new normal. I have to ask you though, if that doesn't happen, the lull in the summer, if there are new variants. And if this threat does carry on, and if tempers remain heated, will you and your colleagues in the human rights world, start making the more unpopular step of saying, hold on, even though we're not going to get plaudits in The Guardian for this, and we're not going to get everybody liking our tweets, we're still going to say, actually, this is no longer acceptable.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's, that is, Human rights advocates should be gadflies. You know, we should be unpopular. Um, that's why I think Shami Chakrabarti, um, you know, played such an important role in the war on terror and was such a divisive figure because she she asked the difficult questions um, and she did it in a very articulate way. That's one of the you know one of my influences when I came into this this field. I think that's the role of you know these. There's a sort of element of being the court jester in a way. Not in a we're not funny. But being the asking the awkward questions, um, being difficult, (laughs) being difficult and standing in the way of what we think are injustices, even if they're unpopular. So, yeah, I mean, I've I've I don't think ever been um, fearful of playing that role. Um, I've just thought during this pandemic that, you know, it's not always been obvious what the right answer is from a human rights perspective because there is this very strong imperative to protect life and it's been a you know really really catastrophic pandemic um you know beyond i mean in my lifetime only only aids was you know played hiv and aids was was that level of um you know severity and i think that's the you know it's it's there's lots of public health questions it's i think also it's it's a it's a kind of cross disciplinary question what's right and what's wrong that's what's so difficult to be able to really understand and appre- and reach answers i think on this you have to go you have to have lawyers you have to have scientists you have to have doctors you have to have ethicists you have to have philosophers you know it's such a big question and such an important one that um you know it's not, that that will have to be what happens
1: Okay, Adam, thank you so much. Um, I look forward to that. I'm really um, hearing what you're saying. I'm, I'm heartened that you also have some of the same concerns about what might transpire in the future. And it's, uh, it's great to know that you're focusing on that. And um, we will um, we'll watch it with with interest. So thank you for your time. Thanks, Freddie. That was Adam Wagner, human rights expert and barrister at Doughty Street Chambers, uh, sharing his thoughts on the legal side of lockdowns. Uh, We've seen laws being made in ways that we're not used to. And there's been an awful lot of them. I think he said there were 65 changes to lockdown laws over the course of the past year. Um, So that was absolutely fascinating. Don't forget, you can watch all of our podcast interviews on our YouTube channel. Find us under Unheard and make sure to subscribe for all the latest. Thanks for joining.